My name is Kevin Downs. I'm an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine of the University of Pennsylvania. I'm also an attending in the Division of Infectious Disease and core faculty of the Center for Pediatric Clinical Effectiveness and the Center for Clinical Pharmacology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. In this podcast today, I'll be speaking about my presentation at ID Week on procalcitonin as a marker for sepsis. My session at ID Week focused on several roles of procalcitonin in patients with sepsis, and there's a lot of data out there. So I tried to tailor the discussion to an ID audience with a particular focus on stewardship and how procalcitonin can guide antibiotic decisions. There are several ways in which procalcitonin has been studied. It's been first looked at as a marker for sepsis and whether procalcitonin can be used to guide decisions to start antibiotics. And the second area is in its ability to guide decisions about antibiotic duration. And I think that in order to address its utility in both of these areas, it's important to kind of put it in context as to why procalcitonin might be helpful for these indications. So sepsis, as we know, is a major cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide. It affects roughly 1.7 million adults in the United States every year and several million neonates and children across the globe annually. But sepsis is a complex process that manifests differently in different people. It can result from any type of infection and progress rapidly from organ dysfunction, which is a hallmark for sepsis, to shock and death. And so there's been a strong push to try to recognize sepsis early and to initiate supportive therapies as quickly as possible, including antibiotics. But not all cases of sepsis are caused by bacterial infections. In fact, in most studies of patients with suspected sepsis, bacterial infections account for about 50% of cases, meaning that half of patients with suspected sepsis won't benefit from antibiotic treatment. And knowing that inappropriate antibiotic use can contribute to the development of antimicrobial resistance and increased adverse events, research has been conducted to try to figure out how to accurately identify bacterial infections among critically ill patients. Unfortunately, our current gold standard, which is microbial cultures, take time and are not perfectly sensitive, and clinicians can't wait for culture results to decide whether or not to start antibiotics when sepsis is suspected. So that's where I think biomarkers come in. Biomarkers like procalcitonin can be used to diagnose sepsis early and, in theory, help guide decisions about who needs antibiotics. And procalcitonin is a potentially attractive biomarker for the early diagnosis of sepsis for a few reasons. First, under normal physiologic conditions, it's undetectable in serum, but in the setting of bacterial infection, pro-inflammatory cytokines trigger its production by numerous cells throughout the body. Importantly, cytokines that are produced in response to viral infection, like interferon gamma, attenuate its production. So procalcitonin is more specific to bacterial than viral infections. Second, procalcitonin rises quickly after bacterial infection. Studies have found that it's detectable within about two hours after infection, peaking around six to 12 hours, and then it goes away in the absence of infection with a half-life of about one to two days. And finally, procalcitonin could be a good biomarker for the early diagnosis of sepsis because levels correlate with the severity of infection. So the levels are higher in the setting of severe infection and septic shock than they are with milder infections. But when we look at the data, the test performance of procalcitonin is really not good enough to guide empiric antibiotic decisions in patients with suspected sepsis. And there's been numerous studies out there, including several meta-analyses, that have summarized the test characteristics of procalcitonin in critically ill patients. And although there's a lot of heterogeneity in the studies that have been performed, both in the study population, in the definition of sepsis, or the diagnosis of infection, generally the test characteristics don't support procalcitonin for 
for the early identification of sepsis. The pooled sensitivity and specificity are around 75 to 80%, both in children and in adults. So this makes it a helpful biomarker, but not good enough for clinicians to rely upon it when deciding whether or not to start antibiotics in a severely ill patient. And that decision really still needs to be made by the clinician evaluating the patient. And I think when sepsis is suspected, antibiotics need to be started regardless of your procalcitonin values. Many studies have been performed that have looked at different types of tests for the diagnosis of sepsis, and procalcitonin certainly has advantages over some of the more traditional biomarkers like white blood cell count, CRP, and lactate, which are really less sensitive and specific than procalcitonin. So I think that it's been used more frequently because of its improved diagnostic accuracy compared to those markers. And numerous studies have been performed to try to identify newer biomarkers, such as presepsin, STREM1, and CD64, which perform largely similarly to procalcitonin. Each of these newer biomarkers tend to have a sensitivity and specificity of around 0.75 to 0.85, depending on the study. CD64 itself may slightly outperform procalcitonin in terms of its test accuracy, but it requires flow cytometry, making it less clinically useful. And in fact, each of these other novel biomarkers are not approved for clinical use. So although procalcitonin has its limitations, I think it is the best that we have clinically available. There's been a number of studies that have also been conducted trying to look at the performance of biomarker combinations, and this may be a good way to improve the test performance of procalcitonin. For instance, measuring both CRP and procalcitonin at the same time. This improves both the sensitivity and, importantly, the negative predictive value. So if you were to measure CRP and procalcitonin at sepsis onset and they were both to be low, that makes bacterial infection very unlikely and and more informative than just a procalcitonin alone. But of course, thinking of diagnostic stewardship, we have to think about the cost effectiveness of measuring multiple biomarkers in this setting. Where the data are most supportive of procalcitonin's use in ICU settings is really in its ability to guide decisions around when to stop antibiotics. Because sepsis carries such significant morbidity and mortality, the decision to start antibiotics really has to be a clinical decision. But procalcitonin can then help you guide decisions about how to stop antibiotics in this patient population, where we're really trying to limit antibiotics to really only those that are necessary. And procalcitonin can help do this in two ways. First, procalcitonin can help identify lower risk patients who have a low probability of infection. So sensitivity and specificity are metrics that help describe the biomarker's utility as a screening test in a population, but they're much less useful when trying to understand an individual patient's risk for infection. And likelihood ratios are more informative here, which are dependent on the pretest probability. And procalcitonin has a good negative likelihood ratio. So for sepsis, if we were to use a cutoff of 0.5 nanograms per milliliter, which is a well-established cutoff for high-risk patients, the negative likelihood ratio is about 0.25. This means that when procalcitonin is less than 0.5, the probability of an infection in an individual is, is much lower. But by how much depends on the pretest probability. And if we took all comers with suspected sepsis, where about 50% of patients have bacterial infections, a negative likelihood ratio really means that that individual would still have about a 20% chance of having infection. They'd reduce the post-test probability from 50% to 20%. But that's because procalcitonin is not sufficient to make a diagnosis of sepsis in itself. But if your pretest probability is lower, say 10%, 
Like when you have additional information about the patient, for instance, if the CRP is also low or in a patient whose cultures are all negative, then the, having a procalcitonin less than 0.5 really drops your protest probability quite significantly down to about 2 or 3%. And so I think it's in this way that procalcitonin can help identify those lower risk patients where they were started on antibiotics empirically, but really the suspicion of an infection or of sepsis is lower. And that can help us guide early decisions about stopping antibiotics, perhaps at 24 hours when cultures are negative. The other way that procalcitonin has been studied and really found to be useful in a larger scale setting is in its ability to guide antibiotic duration overall in patients in the ICU. And that's because the half-life of procalcitonin is around 24 to 36 hours. And in the absence of infection, it should decrease by about 50% every one to two days. And so studies have been performed about whether or not normalization of the procalcitonin can be used to guide decisions about stopping antibiotics. And a large trial called the SAP study, which was performed several years ago, really showed the benefit of this approach. They randomized about 1,500 critically ill adults with presumed infection to either procalcitonin or standard of care discontinuation. And their rule was to stop antibiotics if your procalcitonin was less than 0.5 nanograms per milliliter or if it decreased by 80% from peak. And what they found was that by taking this approach, patients that were randomized to the procalcitonin guided group had a significant reduction in antibiotic duration overall of about 1.2 days. And this occurred despite the fact that adherence to procalcitonin recommendations was poor. Only about 44% of patients in the procalcitonin group actually had their antibiotics stopped within 24 hours of meeting the stoppage rule. And meta-analyses have supported this finding. So beyond just this one study, several meta-analyses looking at, at procalcitonin's use for guiding stopping antibiotics have found that this strategy can lead to a reduction in antibiotic duration overall. But there are important limitations to this approach in that both in clinical trials and in real-life settings, adherence to stopping rules has been poor. And that's because generally clinicians are less willing to stop antibiotics when procalcitonin is normal, but the patient's still sick. So we don't really know whether normalization of procalcitonin means cure in all cases, but at least in the subset of more stable patients in whom clinicians have stopped antibiotics, we've found that procalcitonin guidance can help stop antibiotics earlier than coming up with a rather arbitrary duration of antibiotics for specific infections or in the absence of a defined infection. And so I think the take-home message for users of procalcitonin, particularly in the ID community and the stewardship community, is that procalcitonin can help us shorten antibiotic duration. When it's low at sepsis onset or suspected sepsis onset, it identifies a lower risk group of patients in whom we should really be strongly encouraging stopping antibiotics as quickly as possible, particularly in conjunction with culture results. But even when the procalcitonin is high at illness onset, we can follow procalcitonin over time, perhaps every 24 or 48 hours, and when we see a significant reduction and what's most often used is about an 80% reduction from its peak or normalization, which we consider less than 0.5, then that's a good signal that we can stop antibiotics, particularly when patients are clinically improving. I think questions that come up as well about procalcitonin's use is what to do when procalcitonin and clinical evaluations don't match. So for instance, what should you do with a stable patient that has an elevated procalcitonin? Or conversely, what should you do when you're procalcitonin is normal, but the patient's really sick. And I think from that regard, the informative information is about 
what else affects procalcitonin. There are several things that can cause elevations in procalcitonin in the absence of a bacterial infection, uh, severe fungal infections, severe parasitic infections like malaria, as well as major stressors on the body, such as surgery, trauma, and burns can all cause elevations in procalcitonin. And so when you're in the ICU setting and you have a severely ill patient, you may still have an abnormal procalcitonin in the absence of infection when the patient's having significant organ dysfunction and shock. As well as there are some additional states, such as chronic kidney disease or patients with perineoplastic syndromes in which the procalcitonin is persistently abnormal. And so I think you really have to put the pro procalcitonin in the context of the clinical evaluation, and I would really defer to clinical judgment over the procalcitonin. I wouldn't commit a stable patient to a prolonged course of antibiotics simply because of an abnormal procalcitonin. And similarly, I wouldn't withhold antibiotics from a patient with unexplained shock who has a normal procalcitonin. But there are fewer things that cause a abnormally low procalcitonin. If we were to measure it too soon, during a sepsis event or in the setting of a, a very localized infection such as an abscess, but in a patient with suspected sepsis, there are really few conditions that would cause an abnormally low procalcitonin. So I think really these discordant scenarios might make me do some further investigations, but I really think that clinical evaluation is what needs to guide antibiotic decisions in, when biomarkers and, and the clinical course don't match. Thank you for listening today. For more information about my session and additional resources on procalcitonin, please click the links below.